Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds one. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We always want to hear from you and get your feedback. Of course, read us over at IndyCornrows.com as well. I'm really psyched today to be joined by Caitlin Cooper in our recurring monthly podcast, Two Questions to Ah. Uh, Caitlin, first of all, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, but I've actually questioned if we might need to cancel this podcast because every time it comes up, like I was fully prepared yesterday. People had sent in questions like Mark and I are going to get to have this great, like positive, fun podcast. And then, of course, like we decide that we're going to record it here on Tuesday morning after last night's fourth quarter debacle. So I feel like I'm always like the cloud of doom that comes to rain on the parades of what was seeming like the Pacers were playing better basketball. Yeah, it's uh, it's just frustrating because like, you know, th- this this month in November felt like a real turning point, especially after that jazz game. Um, and then yesterday happens, which we'll dive into uh, for people who have not listened to questions to how before. Can you explain to, to the great people what it is? Right. So once a month, we get together on the third Tuesday, Mark and I do, and we ask each other two questions. I generally source them from Twitter because I prefer to talk about stuff that you guys actually want to hear us talk about. And it's a reference to Reb Porter, the former Pacers PA announcer's classic call at the end of games where he would say two minutes too hot. So we call it two questions too hot and it ends up just kind of being a brainstorming session and We'll see. Some of the questions that got sent in were stuff that didn't actually a- apply too much last night, but we still might get to some of it. So, definitely, yeah, we are going to have a whole segment talking about the fourth quarter. Um, do you want me to start off? Or do you want, or do you want to start off tonight? Tonight, Jesus, it is ten forty-six in the morning. That is my <laughs> mind frame right now. Uh, I was up to like two last night doing stuff, so it was uh, yeah, that kind of day. But nonetheless, you know, I'll, I'll get us started off. I have I have a good one. Um, is there too much randomness in the rotation or do you think that there is? Uh, because I know that's a, that's an odd question to start off with, but I think that really clicked for me yesterday, the team, and it happens every once in a while, but they started, um, they went 10 deep early yesterday. Uh, Tory Craig's minutes have been down lately as Keelan Martin has played more. Um, and that's like, you know, I get it. Also, there's been guys in and out of the lineup as we're accustomed to with Indiana, but um, at times, you know, I think especially when you run counter to what it used to be like two years ago under Nate McMillan, like everything felt um, so scripted to a sense. Like we knew what the rotation was going to be before it ran out there unless there was an injury. Um, and I get to a degree wanting to to run with the hot hand as Rick has really seemed to want to do. But I, I don't know. To me, it's felt like there have been moments where at times there's just a little bit too much randomness. Like I didn't really feel particularly positive about Gogutase's minutes yesterday. Not to be unkind to him, I thought he had some nice moments, but at the same time, uh, that zone with him and, and Domas just did not work, frankly. Um, and the offense really wasn't clicking with them either. Um, I don't know. I, again, I, maybe I'm pulling too much with this one, but but does that uh, ring anything with you? Yeah, I mean, 
yeah, they definitely went 10 deep in the first quarter, which I was a little bit surprised by some of the situational subs I thought were okay. Like, mm-hmm. I think it was at right at the end of the first where Tom Thibodeau had made a sub and the Knicks had downsized quite a bit. So then Rick Carlisle took Sabonis out, put Torrey Craig in so they could switch everything like those types of rapid substitutions I get. And I think that they've been pretty good at uh, mixing and matching there. But as you say, like, you know, going back to the Nate McMillan era, like that bench with TJ and Aaron, Justin, Doug, and Sabonis really had an opportunity to gel. And that was one of their better, like, overall lineups in terms of net rating, which can be noisy. But still, like, you could see that there was a lot of flow. They understood how to play off of each other because they played together so much. And now some of it is because of injuries. Like, once again, now Justin, because Chris Duarte was out, Justin's pressed back into the starting role again. That makes it a little bit harder to mix and match his minutes probably in places where you would want to. So I'm understanding of it, but it never feels like there's a group that really has any opportunity to like get any continuity. And beyond that is some of the combinations seem very awkward at times. Like even going back to the game in Sacramento when they didn't stagger TJ and Brogdon and it was Brad Wanamaker out there with Jeremy and Tori and Sabonis, and I want to say Keelan, like there's just not enough people in that group that can even initiate offense. Like, and it showed up that way. Like they were got outscored pretty badly in that game, as I recall. And last night, it wasn't even so much for me that Goga and Sabonis were playing together. Like, and I I think both of us are in favor of Goga getting developmental minutes. Like if they're going to continue, they're going to continue having all these bigs on the roster, like they need to play or you need to make a change. So I don't want to sound like a hypocrite that now I'm criticizing them for playing Goga. It was a little bit tough a few times because they had downsized, but I didn't mind it. When the two of them were out there, the minute, the couple of minutes that they played with Justin and Keelan and TJ were okay. There was mm-hmm. enough shooting supporting it. TJ was full on handling. When it felt like it got wonky for me was when they were hard hedging, which is what they were doing mainly with the two of them. And Jeremy was playing with them in the first half because, like, we can probably get into this later, but the Jeremy versus Keelan experience is starting to get fairly obvious to me. I don't know how you feel, but um, Jeremy defensively, Keelan also had a few miscues defensively, but Jeremy just in general kind of has that problem. So it felt like they were having trouble getting stops. And some of that I felt like was some of the coverages with the dribble handoffs as well. But um, then in the second half, when they were playing TJ and Karis with Sabonis and Goga, I was very confused by because Karras has very quietly been struggling to shoot the ball. I mean, that's not necessarily new, but I believe his three-point percentage is in the... 21% right now. And it's both catch and shoot and pull-ups. It's been pretty bad. Right. So, and then you have TJ out there who obviously isn't a marksman. So it's like one of them was constantly going to be playing off ball. One of Goga or Sabonis wasn't going to be screening. And then they weren't really like... If you're going to have them both out there, then run a double drag so that they're both at the top or do try to do some high low. Like, you know, I, I love a little bit of funk on the roster. So like the one dribble handoff between Goga and Sabonis, like that was a cool moment. I liked that, but um, it was more about, it wasn't even so much that tandem as it was who they were playing with mm-hmm. and what lineup New York had out there at the time. Like that felt a little bit confounding for me. And it, it did seem like it stalled out some of the stuff. Like if you're going to play them, then I think you need to be playing them with shooters. But I was enthused because after the game against the Sixers, which, I mean, we should point out that the, the way the Knicks were playing defense, particularly in the second half was quite a bit different than the defense that the Pacers saw from the jazz or the Sixers. 
Like that was a very uncharacteristically bad performance by the Utah Jazz, especially on the perimeter by Mike Conley and, and how Brogdon was able to get into the paint versus as well as with the Sixers, they had a lot of miscommunications. I don't know how many times in that game where the Pacers could have run the same play probably like four or five times without the Sixers making an adjustment or getting a stop versus, you know, what New York was doing in the fourth quarter was suffocating and, and quite a bit different. But to make a long story short, I did really like what the bench you know, looked like against the Sixers when it was McConnell. Keelan, Justin, Torrey, and Sabonis. And if that group hadn't played as well as they did, despite the fact that the Sixer or that the Pacers shot 70% in the first half, I don't know if they would have won that game because the starters ended up getting outscored by the end of that. So I thought that group looked good, but it's like what you said at the top. Like it's tougher to get to that group with Justin off the bench in a full bench unit when he's having to be a starter and Chris isn't available. So I get some of it, but it feels like, you know, you're also like 15 games in and you're still trying to tinker with you know, who, who works well together and who doesn't in ways that seem like it should be sort of obvious at times. Yeah, no, exactly. Like it just seems like they haven't really been able to form a, uh, a cohesive group that they can rely on. And that's part of what killed them yesterday because the Knicks, I mean, their bench has been right. fantastic this year. And that, I mean, the, honestly, the starters completely outplayed the Knicks starters yesterday, but then, I mean, they closed with Emmanuel quickly, Alec Burks and, and Taj Gibson, because they were just absolutely demolishing the Pacers off the bench. Um, so I don't know. That's something that I really hope gets shored up moving forward. But I, I mean, right now on the horizon, it does not seem like that's uh, that's happening. And even if, OK, when T.J. Warren comes back and hopefully weeks, but likely a month uh, based on, you know, what we keep hearing, um, that just makes things even a little bit more confounding. So I don't know. Um, and just as a little side question with that, how have you felt about the Keelan Martin experience? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few times where he's probably gotten a little bit ahead of himself yeah. where like he starts to make a couple shots and then he's like uh, thinking he should be, from 18 feet. Yeah. yeah, he should be ISOing it out. I thought last night as well as the rest of the team, I mean, he got very confused on one Spain possession where he needed to jump out and switch quicker. And I think Derek Rose just blew past him to the rim. And then again, on one of the handoffs, he had a bad moment. I think it was shortly after that, that he got taken out. But in general, like... I don't think that there should be much of a choice between him and Keelan at this part or between Jeremy and Keelan at this particular point, because um, one thing that I thought went really under the radar uh, was that up in Utah there at the start of the fourth quarter and late in the third, I believe Keelan Martin was guarding Rudy Gobert and they were switching deliberately, which is the book on the jazz. I mean, Rudy's just not going to do a lot against a switch. They don't have a lot of ISO guys outside of Donovan Mitchell. So you're switching and it bogs down their offense. That goes back several years in the playoffs, but particularly with the Clippers when they got ousted and they were helping one pass over. So I thought that was a pretty smart adjustment by the Pacers, but like, just imagine if you were doing that with Jeremy Lamb, like Keelan was guarding, (laughs) Keelan was guarding Rudy. If they screened, then they were putting, you know, Chris or even TJ McConnell or whoever it was on that switch. Rudy did not score during that entire time. They were having trouble even getting in the ball. And quite frankly, if they did, like it was a question of whether the pass was going to get completed or not. Like they had given up. Like, I think overall, like Rudy was what, like five or six on lobs. Like he had gotten several lobs in a row. They made that adjustment. And like, there's not a lot of other people you probably could have accomplished that with. And there's a reason why they went with Keelan over even trying to do it with Malcolm Brogdon. And that gives them another option. I mean, like I said, you, I can't even imagine that you would run that out. And it goes back to some of what Nate Bjorkman tried with Jeremy Lamb last year at the four. Like, we know how that looked. It did not end well. So, um, 
I thought that that was one particular aspect in addition, like his scoring got more of the shine because he did make some of those late shots late closing, but, and then he also had good moments against the Sixers and they just need more shooters, quite frankly, like last night in the fourth quarter, they were one of 13 for the game. I'm trying to pull up the box score for the game. They were eight of 37. And three of those were from Sabonis. So the rest of the team made five threes. So like that's, I mean, Keelan didn't make any last night, but in theory, like he has a better chance of doing that. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't mind seeing him in the rotation. It's kind of funny when you look back at the summer, because obviously he started the year with the hamstring injury. And if Edmund Sumner hadn't have had the ruptured Achilles, it seemed kind of like he was going to be the odd man out and that, you know, they would need to use his spot to sign a third string point guard. And as it turned out, like they didn't have to do that because unfortunately what happened to Edmund, but yeah, it seems like he can add some valuable stuff in spots. I mean, I don't know how consistent he'll be with it all year, but that moment against the jazz definitely was like, Oh, that's something. Yeah. I've just been really impressed with his ability to attack off second side actions too. Like he had a really beautiful closeout attack yesterday He's run a little bit of pick and roll, so, and as you mentioned too, maybe a little bit too much at times, but um, he just has been a nice boon to the rotation. So it's been good to see him play as well as he has. Um, all right, well, let's transition to your first question. What's 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 your first question you're bringing to the table? Right. So I have a couple different ways that I can go, but why don't we just launch right into everybody's favorite topic to keep the good vibes rolling? Last night's fourth quarter. <laughs> Woo! So uh, I think I scored more points playing uh, playing 2K on Hall of Fame mode this morning than I did watching last night. But yeah, uh, ten points in the fourth quarter. An so absolute, ten points, uh, yeah, ten points in the fourth quarter. Two of twenty from the field. One of thirteen from three. Only one turnover. They did get to the lineup six times, which is something for them. And they took four shots at the rim during that quarter. So we can start anywhere. I have a number of thoughts about some of the stuff that went on, but I'll, I'll let you free form with it. You go where you want to go. Oh, that is a lot of power. Um, <laughs> it's kind of funny to me because a lot of the time, like, you know, any, especially like sitting on a meet availability. Now, anytime that the Pacers play an away game, like the first question that gets asked for Rick is normally about the, the Domas miles pairing and sure, there are questions about them. Well, because um, don't you know that those are the only two people on the team? They are, actually. No, no yes. one else is on the court at the, the same time. The full salary cap is allocated to Miles and Domas, actually. Yep, just, and just and anything that goes wrong is because of one of them. Yep. Um, I have more questions about how Malcolm and Karis fit together than I do about Miles and Domas right now. Would you agree with that? Because I think the fourth quarter was a really good highlight of that. Well, not, I mean, it, not, a, not a good highlight, a low light to a degree, but yeah. I mean, both of them are quietly shooting the ball from three, like I said earlier about Karis, but Malcolm isn't shooting the three all that well either for the season. I don't know what his number is at, but I, I think he might be right. right yeah, I was going to say, I think he's below 30. So, I mean, that's that's a big piece of it all in itself. I don't think I'm so concerned about their fit in general as I'm concerned with their fit against what the Knicks were doing, which I'll let you go ahead and say what you're going to say. Well, yeah, my point is just, 
I mean, so much of last night. And again, I don't want to be overly critical because both of them have missed time. They haven't really played that much together this year. And in the grand scheme of things, they've played less than 30 games together in the NBA. But we've routinely seen a lot of uh, struggling to kind of find out who is. Um, it, it just has not been a seamless fit. Like it, it, there's been a lot of struggles to find, okay, my turn, your turn in the half court, especially yesterday. Part of that is the Knicks, Knicks defense, like you're mentioning. And I think what you're going to mention is how much they were going under on Malcolm and Karras on pick and rolls. Um, but it was, it's just, I, I don't know. It, it's kind of felt like a struggle in like, you have two guys who are ball handlers. Both of them feel like they're point guards. And I'm not trying to make this a thing about them, like being against one another, but it, it to a degree, it's just, it, it's been a real struggle to figure out, okay, who's, who's on ball, who's off ball. We know the struggles of Karras being off ball as mentioned, um, but also Malcolm brings stuff on ball. It just, it, it doesn't feel solidified. And I feel like that's contributed a lot, at least showing last night. It felt like that contributed a lot to um, some of the struggles in the half court. Right. So I do wonder how much Karras's back is impacting some of this because yeah. there's times where it seems like he's trying to avoid contact when he could be attacking some of that's just how his overall herky jerky game is. But I think you can notice that here and there. I mean, it, it, it seems pretty clear to me that this offense is geared around Malcolm Brogdon. I mean, I don't know where his numbers are right now, but uh, last week at one point in time, like I have mentioned in the past, like even compared to Luka Doncic and Dallas's offense last year, Brogdon was averaging more touches. Brogdon was averaging more passes. Like, a lot of it, it, like it's going to be run through Brogdon. And I think that makes sense to a certain extent because while Karras can pass and I appreciate it, especially in his first game back that he got downhill and made plays and that they had somebody else that could run pick and roll. Um, I just feel like there's been a lot of possessions where it seemed like he has blinders on. Like I felt that against the Kings game in the second half when he was like six of 17 or whatever it was. And I felt that at times last night where, you know, the Knicks are a defense that's very much going to flood over on the strong side and is really going to pinch in on pick and rolls. That's who they are. They're going to ice you. They're going to, like you said, they were going under on pick and rolls. So you got to be able to keep your eyes up and be looking to the opposite side of the floor. And I didn't really feel like he was doing that. But for me, actually, what I was going to say is there's two possessions that I felt pretty much summarized that quarter. With nine minutes and 24 seconds left in the fourth quarter, number one, one big thing that changed, the Knicks were not having Alec Burks guard Malcolm Brogdon earlier in the game. Like Brogdon was toasting Kemba and toasting Derrick Rose and getting to the basket. Then they decided late, like we're going to unleash Alec Burks to be extending the pressure. And they were picking him up sometimes at three quarters and half court. And he just wasn't handling it all that well. They weren't getting into offense quick enough. So this, this feels like a synopsis to me. So they get a defensive rebound at this point in time in the game. And they look over to the bench and like a couple guys on the floor. Like I noticed it a few times that miles and Sabonis were trying to tell people like, calm down. Like you could see both of them, I, I think trying to, I don't know exactly what they're saying, but it seemed to me like they were trying to show some leadership, like, Hey, like we're okay. Just run the offense. But they looked over at the bench and the bench was telling them to like, as we've seen, slow it up. And I understand where they're coming from and that they want to control the pace in certain games. Like, especially when they were in Sacramento, like you don't want to get in a track meet with the Kings. Maybe you don't want to get in a track meet when you're playing in altitude, I understand that, but last night with how the Knicks offense had had really ratcheted up and how tough it was for them to get stuff in the half court, I didn't really see why they weren't letting them uh, 
push the ball up the floor quicker. And like, there was one possession where Brogdon went one on five and just went straight to the rim. I'm not making that argument, but race the ball up the floor so that Alec Burks isn't just dogging you the whole way there. Like, so my point being is they didn't even get it across half court until like, Once they got off across half court and actually started to run an offensive set, there was 15 seconds left on the shot clock. Then at that point, Alex Burks ran, Alec Burks ran Brogdon, wanted to use the screen. Brogdon rejects it. Burks sends him left, which is kind of the book. Brogdon tries to go back over the screen. They go right. They go under. He can't get anywhere. And then Burks just keeps pressuring and pressuring and pressuring him. There was never a pass on that entire possession until the very end when he chucked it to Sabonis from like two feet behind the three-point line. And then Sabonis launched a three with under two seconds left on the clock. Like that just, that can't be the case. And then to mirror that with about five minutes left to go in the quarter, Karras had an entire possession where RJ Barrett did the same thing, picked him up at half court and there was never a single pass on the entire possession. Like that just can't be like, I understand that Karras can create space for himself in theory. I mean, his numbers in isolation have never been great in part because he isn't great from three. Like he's not super efficient there, but you can't have whole possessions on this particular team where you're not moving the ball. So my point piggybacking off of what you said and what their fit is. And just to add another question to this layer, how concerned are you about this team's ability to handle ball pressure? Huh, that is a great question. Because um, that, to me, was the difference. They weren't handling the pressure from Alec Burks and R.J. Barrett when people were getting way up into them at half court. They weren't getting into offense. Yeah, I think it's definitely been a problem, and we've seen it a couple of times this year. Um, part of – and I, I don't know if this would necessarily solve it, but, again, part of it is, like, just not having, in my opinion, the right personnel to really run a five-out offense – um, and that doesn't fix that entirely, but more so just, okay, you have maybe one of the five best release valves in the NBA. Why not use that to ease things up? Because I do think to a degree, like uh, Karis Malcolm are just being asked to, to do too much in some ways. And I, I can't say whether or not that's on, on them or on the coaching staff. It seems like it's a lot on the coaching staff. Cause like you mentioned so much is play calling, but um, you know, sometimes you need more touches to, um, to ease things up for everyone else. And that's not, you know, like, cause I mean, we've talked about it before, like a touch is not synonymous with, with shooting the ball. Like, okay. Sometimes running, uh, like looking at like what the Cavs do, the Cavs do a lot of actually really intuitive stuff considering, um, you know, they're, they've, they have a really funky roster in the same way that the Pacers do, but to the max. Um, and they run a lot of uh, quick pitches with with their ball handlers to get them space. So, like, they'll run a lot of pistol action on the side uh, to get exchanges and then, um, you know, run blind pig or um, just do like a, a, you know, a quick two man game with Evan Mobley or Jared Allen to to get to, to use your speed to get moving somewhere. Um, the Pacers just don't really do that with Domas as much. And it's it's been very apparent this year. You put that in your article yesterday. Um I probably just went on a random side tangent that, that isn't super correlative, but it, it has felt like noticeable to me. Like teams just don't really like, I think if, if you have a lot more to worry about in the half court with, okay, if Domas is um, starting with, with mid post entry, instead of being out, you know, 24 feet, maybe that is making a difference to how you're getting played defensively. Um, that's not going to completely apply to, to ball pressure, but I think in a way like, um, if you're going to ease up on some of the ball pressure, you got to have other guys who are, are, are getting 
worried about in the same way. Yeah. For me, I just, I think part of it is I just, I don't know if they have a person because I mean, Brogdon came out for a little bit there midway and the fourth, and it seemed like, Hey, they then were letting TJ McConnell try to run some stuff because he does have a little bit more of a quick burst and handle combination than Brogdon and Karras do. And then at that point in time, like they're just, you know, ducking under on everything. And like I said, really flooding over. And then there was times where TJ was out there. And like we've brought up many times in the past, they're flooding over on Brogdon and, and Lavert, And then TJ was in the corner twice. Like they came completely off TJ in the corner. Malcolm makes the right pass. TJ shoots a three. They're leaving the weak side open as the Knicks do. They skip it over. Now Brogdon or now McConnell has another three. Like it's two possessions in the fourth quarter. And I know that he's hit those at a decent enough level, but like still it makes it even easier for the Knicks to do what they were doing. Uh, I do think in somewhat like, yeah, I pointed out in that article, like I admit, like I will carry this L. I, I do. Like I was wrong. I did not think that they would de-emphasize some of the stuff that uh, Sabonis has done to this extent. Like I never thought that I would look up numbers and see that Kristaps Porzingis and Dallas's offense last year, both teams running at a 98 pace mm-hmm. would have averaged more post-ups than Sabonis. Like I never, like if you had told me that I've been like, ah, that's funny because not only like this Kristaps Porzingis, like have no low center of gravity and like just, isn't the same physical presence that Sabonis is like, he is not a good passer out of those possessions, like at all. So I don't know some of it. I will say in defense of the coaching staff last night that they did, they were looking for that a few times when he got switches against Kemba and other stuff, but it just took way too long to try to interim the ball. And then by that point in time, like Randall or Robinson had scrammed out the smaller guard. So that's a piece of it. Um, I didn't really have too much of a problem. Like there was, points in time like it felt like they were trying to run a lot of veer action to get Justin loose and the one good thing about that was when he he was getting loose and then he would like his gravity was enough that he was drawing like two people were meeting him when he got off of those screens and that was leaving the roller open and Sabonis could have made that one shot at the rim he just that was a bad miss at an opportune time so like some of that I felt like there's a couple shots that probably could have gone a different way that was one of them but then there was another possession where we can, this is a whole nother piece of the fourth quarter in the game as a whole, where like miles got involved in the screen and roll. He was wide open on the roll. Brogdon tossed it to him and Emmanuel quickly's there. And he immediately just hot potatoes it out to the perimeter. Like that's a spot for me where like, I know the team is geared around like making the extra pass and stuff, but you got to be able to recognize in the moment that that mm-hmm. is a tiny guard, like take one dribble and power up and go to the rim. Like that was a missed opportunity to that point. Then they had to reset the offense and they're back doing stuff again. So um, I felt like that was a piece of it as well, but mainly for me, when I watched it back this morning, it was the ball pressure from Alex Burke making a difference. Me questioning because some of this was a problem in Denver. If they have guys with the right amount of, you know, handle burst and shooting to be able to combat some of that. Because when I did write the article as well, that was actually a talking point. Like, look, I've watched them run this one particular play that works really well for them over 25 times this year. And the best way to combat it is to get aggressive with them pressure and try to deny the pass. And the Knicks did that. And then just, you know, I thought there was points where Karras could have moved the ball and didn't. Some of the pace control was a little bit much, but I don't know if you want to talk about it. It seemed like a pretty heavy talking point last night. And as you said, was one of the first questions that got asked at the presser last night. What was your opinion of Miles only having three shots or whatever it was? Because I think we're in the same place on this. 
Yeah, I mean, he was just guarded differently that differently last night. I should just say he was guarded. Um, yeah. He wasn't in the last Knicks game. And, I mean, that's, again, credit to him. He was fantastic. He was a big reason why they won that last game against the Knicks. I think because, he was largely the reason they yeah. won that last game against the Knicks. Yeah, and, I, I mean, he was just – he was guarded completely differently to the last – geez, tonight, last night. Um, I understand some people looking at the box score and be like, ah, oh, you didn't do enough. Like, there were moments where he could have been more aggressive. Like, you just pointed out, like, okay, you got to take that one. And I think um, he's had a little bit of a tendency to, like you mentioned, hot potato it out on the roll. It has been like, again, another quick aside. I do think like he's been trying to work on his short role playmaking. Like it's not fantastic, but I think it's coming along a little bit. But picking picking the right spots to do it is is kind of the next step for him, it feels like. But um, I mean, he's 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 just got to get accustomed to that. He's never really been guarded like that before. Like teams are finally, at least last night, a team is like, okay, you scored – However many, I mean, you shot seven to 10 from three last time. So we're, we're freaking guarding you. Um, and Rick mentioned too, in the post game, like part of that is having to, you know, he's like, you know, I got to run different things for miles to get him better opportunities. Um, and I do think that that, that factors in for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, taking away a wide open shooter who hits seven to 10 has a, has a massive impact on the offense. Yeah. And in the long run, like in the first game, exactly. Like the matchups were not the same. The way they were guarding him was not the same. And that should be the main ta- talking point, not what his production was. Because in the first game, Mitchell Robinson was guarding him, which is the same thing they did last year with Nerlens. It was, we're going to put the five on him and completely sag off and send that person to Sabonis or to whoever's driving into the paint. And if he beats us from three, he does. And in the last game of the year, I think he was like one of seven. That worked. It was a worthy gamble. Tom Thibodeau tried it again, and it completely backfired. He got way more than he gambled for. Miles was great, made seven to ten shots. That's exactly what you want him to do. And if you look at that box score from that game, there were so many other, like, weird things about it that, like, what you're saying. I'm pretty sure, like, I and mean, we can't say this definitively because, like, if they had guarded him, they would have done different things. But, like, if Miles doesn't play like that, I don't think that they would have won that game, quite honestly. Yeah, no, so, um, then, you know, they reacted. They came out in this one, and Julius Randle was guarding Miles, and Mitchell Robinson was guarding Sabonis. So, in theory, and, and to an extent, like, that shifted the floor. It did make things a little less congested in the paint at the beginning of the game before they really started flooding there at the end. And that's just a, that's the difference. It's exactly what you're saying. Like miles has never really seen coverage like this because people didn't buy into his three point shot enough to care. And now he's shooting over 40%. His shot looks really smooth. He's been used in a couple of different ways. And like, that's just going to be another adaptation. Like the offense did start to stall, but also like, if you watch that quarterback, like they tried setting exit screens to free up miles and the Knicks were just covering it. Like they actually cared to fight through and try to get out there. So then it's like, okay, if somebody rushes out through that, then you need to slip and you'll be able to get something at the rim. So I feel like that's going to be the next evolution is him adjusting to the fact that teams are guarding him and where he can still find his spots. Cause there's still going to be spots to find within the offense. It's just, especially in the way he's used when he's used more off ball is like this pick and pop floor spacing cutter. There'll be places to do that. It's just like, I don't think that that should probably be expected like his first game out when he didn't know how they were going to guard him and you're trying to adjust throughout the game. So like, I'm not really like 
going to get on the, like the inconsistent train. Cause he only had three points last night. Cause it, it would be a lot different. Like if the Knicks had come out and guarded him and Mitchell Robinson was sagging off of him again, and that was the case, like, yeah, then we need to talk about it. But in this case, like the coverage was different. And I don't really think that was the reason they lost the game. I think that what the Knicks did defensively and the fact that the guards were kind of dribbling the air out of the ball and not really adjusting around that was more the issue in my personal opinion, but yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I also just think too, like not to totally, you know, um, come to Miles's defense or anything, but like, okay, you can, you can have your qualms about consistency for his career, but like that was the first out of eight games where he has scored below 10 points. Uh, you know, it's just chill. We, we don't have to have a giant takeaway after one game, unless it's like the fourth quarter, because fourth quarter was terrible, but you, you get my point. Um, I'm selective here. Uh, unless you have anything else to expand on with that, I think uh, it is my question now, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Um, this is more of a, I like, you know, kind of just an opinion-based one. Is is Justin Holiday back? Uh, and I know that is a very random question, but I thought in the Philadelphia game, he really looked like himself again. And part of that is, yes, he scored 27 points, but I mean more so like um, he looks like himself a little bit more athletically. At least I thought so against Philadelphia. I thought he looked pretty good last night as well. Um, again, the shooting numbers weren't quite there, but I feel like he's getting to his shots a little bit more easily. He just looks more spry defensively and like the ankle injury isn't bothering him as much. Um, and again, it's, it's a really minute part of everything, but just considering how important Justin is for kind of stabilizing some of their lineups, um, especially with the floor spacing and considering like with Chris out, I mean, he's just about the only movement shooter on the team, um, it's kind of essential. And I think with like stat, like I don't want to, again, I don't want to be too critical considering he was dealing with an injury that's been lingering, but this is the worst his defense has looked since he's been in Indiana. And I do think it looked better, especially against Philadelphia. Like he was instrumental in, um, you know, uh, lock and trail with, with Seth Curry and Furkan Korkmaz to really try and run them off the line. Um, but where are you at with Justin? Yeah, it's felt like in some games he's like either making all of the threes or none of the threes. <laughs> yes. Like last night he was two of seven, I think. Um, I think Justin, like even when he doesn't make shots, he still does a lot of really important things. And like you're mentioning, like they don't have another movement type option. And some of that too is like after the Kings game when I wrote like he and Duarte were getting top locked and some other teams have copied that. Like I noticed in the Denver game, like if it got to be late shot clock, the Nuggets do not normally top lock. And then they were like, hey, if it's if it's late clock, we're going to guard it that way because they just don't have a lot of guys. And if we can strip some of that motion, which um, the coaching staff has some really good counters for that, but it does eliminate their ability to get to the three point line. Like you're going to flow into other stuff, but it's not a three. So then who are you getting threes for? Like that that's a piece of it. But. I felt last night that Chris was missed in a number of ways because in the prior game against the Knicks, he was guarding Kemba Walker and then Karis and Brogdon were switching on the perimeter last night. Justin was guarding Kemba Walker and what you're mentioning, I thought showed up a little bit. He struggled to stay in front at times and some of the coverage didn't make a lot of sense to me. Like I wasn't entirely sure what like 
And, you know, all those matchups got a little bit messy because in the prior game too, like Brogdon was guarding Fournier and then they could switch the handoffs with Randall because Brogdon's strong enough to do that. Those matchups weren't always working out for them to do that. And on the handoffs in particular, I didn't really get like most teams against handoffs will go under the first time requiring a rescreen. The Pacers were fighting over and then they were having the bigs drop way far back. And it's like, what exactly is the plan here? Because Derek Rose and, and Kemba were just pretty much moseying into fairly easy shots when either Justin or Jeremy or TJ or whoever was getting creamed by the screen on the handoff. So it felt like they either needed to be switching that or they needed to be playing the big a lot higher or ideally, like for me, I, I probably would have lived with it and just shot the gap on the under because you can usually meet guys quick enough on a handoff because of how it functions and they weren't doing that. But Justin didn't look great in, in those settings. I didn't think either necessarily defensively. But I don't normally get concerned with him because I think a lot of this is he's been playing a lot of minutes again, which was a problem last year, and he just needs to be a bench player. And it's not really his fault that he's had to start a bunch of games again. Like, I don't think we'll be looking at this quite the same way like we weren't against the Sixers when he gets to come off the bench. Hopefully some of his minutes in that sense get to match with Sabonis, like what was the case with that Keelan McConnell, Justin, Torrey Craig lineup, and then he gets to run more handoffs because a lot of the time last night, like his bench minutes weren't matching up with Sabonis's. So then he's not really getting the exact same types of shots. Like I feel like he's kind of like the new Doug in the sense that mm-hmm. you probably want those two playing together as much as possible. And because he was a starter, it really wasn't adding up. But um, yeah, it's felt like as a shooter, he's either been really hot or hasn't been able to find the bottom of the net. But I still think Justin does so many important things that I try not to be super critical of him. Yeah, no, most definitely. Um, but I'm just, yeah, I'm hopeful that that he's back physically because it, it has looked like it more recently, but we will see moving forward. Um, all right. What is your, uh, what's your next question or last question, I guess. Yeah, it's my last one, but I kind of prepared both of these things because people asked about them and while they didn't really apply last night, they have applied to the season as a whole. So I thought, Maybe we could try to tackle them. Um, yeah. Somebody asked, there are two statistical trends. Somebody asked, like, the Pacers have been much better at rebounding this year. Like, they not just on the sense that they're beginning offensive rebounds and, and second chance points, but they have moved up to 15th in opponent offensive rebounding percentage. This was before last night's game because they didn't have the numbers updated when I got up this morning. But last year, they were dead last in that category. And under Nate McMillan, they were 24th. And when they were in the bubble, specifically, they were dead last. So moving up to 15th in opponent offensive rebounding percentage is a pretty big jump. So um, what do you attribute to the improvements at rebounding? Yeah, that's what we that's what we were asked. So okay, that's, this is something I've thought about, um, and I really think a lot of it has come down to a Malcolm Brogdon has been much better as a rebounder this year, um, and I, it, it hasn't felt like just in terms of picking up rebounds. Like I think he's been a little bit better boxing out. He was him and TJ Warren. Not to throw shade at TJ Warren, but even when when you know back in TJ's uh, healthy year, like neither of them were very good at boxing out. And I think that we've talked about it before. That's been more of a problem than anything else. I think a lot of people like to point the finger at Miles, and I get it to a degree because his rebounding numbers are lower, but he's been good at boxing out. It's just the guys who actually have things open up for them. And Scott Agnes was on a podcast with uh, with Tony East the other day and mentioned this too. Like uh, the Nate McMillan and Nate Bjorkman last year, like they, they always wanted Miles and Domas to focus on just boxing out and let the guards and wings rebound. 
that's been different this year. Like I think uh, Miles has been, we, I mean, we've noticed that Miles has been a lot more aggressive on the glass on both ends. I think he's been much more, uh, saying focus would be the wrong way to put it, much more uh, like willing to go out and get a board or not, not that he hadn't been before, but like you can tell there's like a definite clear aggression to go and get a rebound. I think that's contributed, but also like I think adding in Torrey Craig has been huge. He's been awesome on the offensive glass, but also he's very good at finding a body on the defensive end. Um, I I just think overall, like the the rebounding across the roster has gone up a tick because of some of the um, some of the players who aren't Domas or Miles. And I also think Duarte's been big in that too. Like he's really great on on defensive rebounds. Like. You see him multiple times, uh, you know, playing out for a loose ball, which is not everything. But, like, I do think um, they've been better at corralling some of the long rebounds, too. Yeah, their box out numbers, is, I think they're at 8.9 this year and 8.8 last year. But the difference is they're playing at a much slower pace. So, in reality, that would mean that they are boxing out more often, but they don't let you adjust that for pace. So, I don't know what the actual number would be. But yeah, Miles and Sabonis are combining for about the same number of rebounds as last year. So I do think a lot of it looks at Brogdon and Duarte in particular. Brogdon is at a career high defensive rebounding percentage. Duarte is an improvement in that area over when they were starting Doug or Justin in that spot last year. I think that he makes an effort to look over his shoulder and see where guys are. And and not Mm -hmm. that Doug and Justin were lazy. I just think that that comes to Chris a little bit more naturally. But I also think that uh, their overall rebounding percentage at the rim has been better. Like they've moved up to ninth at grabbing misses around the basket compared to, I think they were 26th last year in that particular category. They're better at most of the categories off of misses at any range, but the rim is a pretty big difference. So I think I attribute some of that to the fact that they're allowing less action at the rim in general. Their rim frequency has gone from 30th to 18th. So when you're not having to constantly rotate over and some of that has to do with different defensive schemes that they're using, but a lot of times last year when you watch it, it would be like, okay, Miles is rotating over to challenge a shot. Now Brogdon or Jeremy or whoever it is, isn't sliding down to sink into that guy. And they're just getting like an offensive rebound. Like, I don't know how many times that happened in the one game against Memphis with Valanciunas, which Valanciunas is a great offensive rebounder anyways, but even more emphasis on why you needed to be more vigilant of that. So some of it, I think is the defensive scheme. Um, I think some of it's that the minutes management overall, like they were, some guys were playing big minutes at the beginning of the season and Sabonis obviously I think was close to 40 last night. So this talking points a little bit, not good, but they, most of their guys now are hovering around 35. So when you're playing in, in smaller bursts, I think that helps with the energy on the glass to an extent. Um, and then the flip side of what I said earlier, they're kind of controlled pace. They're 29th in pace after a defensive rebound. Now, some of that, like it's after they grab the defensive rebound that you'll see Rick Carlisle, like putting both hands out, like, whoa, whoa, easy, like slow it down. But I do think a piece of their pace being slower is that they are sending more people to the glass. Whereas last year under Nate Bjorkren, they'd send a couple people to leak out because they Mm -hmm. really wanted to establish their pace. When you're leaking out, that's putting you at a numbers disadvantage. It's making it harder to get rebounds. So um, I do think that's a, a, a bit of why their rebounding has also gotten better and then they're also just playing double big a lot like now because of what we said earlier with Goga and Sabonis I looked it up this last night before they played as many minutes as they did and 42 percent of the team's minutes are with at least two of Goga Miles or Sabonis on the court last year that was 32 percent so it's almost a 10 percent increase in how often they're playing with multiple big bodies out there versus you know 
last year you might have had Jeremy Lamb at the floor. Like you're going to be a better rebounding team if 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 you're having those guys on the floor versus some of the lineups that were out there. So I think it's a number of factors. And, you know, there has been a bit of a mix in their schedule. They have played some bottom 10 rebounding teams, but they've also played like Toronto, Miami, Utah, Utah, New York. Those are all good offensive rebounding teams. And and against Utah, they made a big piece. Reason why they won that game is because of how many offensive rebounds they got. So I think that a lot of the players deserve credit for just being vigilant and making it, uh, just taking more pride in what they're doing, quite frankly. Like, I don't want that to sound harsh, but there was times last year where it just didn't seem like they were necessarily taking a lot of pride in securing those rebounds from the perimeter. No, I I don't think that's harsh at all. I think that's just kind of honest. Like that was the case last year. Um, But yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. Also, I have a very random stat that I just remembered that I pulled. I think it was before the Philadelphia game. Um, That has nothing to do with rebounding, but I just thought of it right now. And I think it's worth throwing out on a podcast because we have talked about the early offense before and some of our like, hmm, why is this happening? Um, I think it's, yeah, per NBA.com uh, during very early offense. Uh, so it's like the 24 to 17 seconds. Um, Pacers have the lowest field goal percentage and second lowest effective field goal percentage in the NBA. Uh, and part of that is, you know, sometimes it's just sample size and, and, and shooting luck, but um I still am just a little bit vexed with like when they do get into early offense, some of the shots that they take, I'm just like, what are we doing here? Um, but that I, I know that was like completely out of nowhere, but I just want to throw that stat in here. Yeah. Some of the places that they're like, if you look at unpredictable, that's where I got that stat about the mm-hmm. their 29th and, and pace after a defensive rebound, but then they're like much higher after a make. And especially after a turnover, which the turnover I get, I think they're willing to let them push off of those because you're going to be in a fast break situation, but it's a little bit funny that their pace is higher after a make than it is a defensive rebound. But sometimes I think it's like what you're saying, like the percentage might be lower. Cause like last night, the couple times in the fourth quarter, when they actually did rush the ball up the floor, it was like, okay, now it's Brogdon one on four at the rim. And like that shot is like a kamikaze drive. Like nothing's going to happen probably good there. So um, probably needs to be a little bit better shot selection and recognition of where they are. I mean, sometimes they'll take early threes. Like I'm pretty okay. Even if Chris Duarte misses for them to pass the ball ahead to him sprinting to the three point line, even if they don't necessarily have people in rebounding position, because I do think that that can affect the way that defenses respond later on. But I don't know exactly what his field goal percentage is on those, but I'm generally okay with giving certain players like that, the green light, but there are, there are moments where Brogdon or TJ will really rush it and rush it without uh, other teammates being around at times. So that's part of it. But the other statistical trend that did not apply to last night but has applied on the season that I wanted to bring up is the free throws. So they are, as of yesterday, before last night's game, 26th in free throw attempt rate and 20 eighth an opponent free throw attempt rate um that is the opponent free throw attempt rate is worse than last year so in general what i'm telling you is they're fouling more often and getting to the line less as a team um so which one of those numbers do you do you find more concerning um are you concerned by them and can do you think they can fix how often they're getting to the free throw line uh I don't know if they can fix how often they're getting to the free throw line other than getting Domas downhill more, but that just doesn't seem to be the 
the prerogative right now. I mean, this is Domas's lowest free throw rate since uh, actually, I think it's his lowest free throw rate in Indiana. I'm checking right now. It's um, his lowest since he was a yeah. rookie. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has been his shots. I mean, where he's getting his shots from, like, yes, he's been pretty efficient from the floor, but also like he's taking his shots from a much further distance. Like he's just not even that it's from a further distance, but you get what I'm saying. Like he's taking a lot more threes. It's less about him being um, around the rim. And also he has been kind of hosed with some calls. Like I try not to complain about foul calls, but he gets clobbered underneath the rim and just doesn't get, get a great whistle, but also like, I think it's a lot more the, the, the defensive, uh, not defense. Yeah. The defense and the amount of free throws they let up is more concerning to me. And I think it's a lot less on, on, uh, on rim protection or anything. It's more just like their perimeter defense is still just not good. Like, even though I think over the last seven games prior to the Knicks playing, uh, I mean, prior to the Knicks game, they had the 12th ranked defense in, in November. And a lot of that felt like uh, just, you know, like they, they, they had good stretches of defense, but the, the perimeter defense has still has been a problem. Like, I mean, Domas is averaging three and a half fouls per game, but that's not really on him. Like some of the, I mean, part of it, yes, like it's, you can't always foul somebody, but he's, he's being tasked with very, very difficult perimeter perimeter assignments like he's being tasked with picking up a wing or you know having to do things like that like just overall the team is fouling a lot more because they aren't the quickest on the perimeter um and i think that's contributed a lot to how much guys are getting to the foul line i I don't know if you agree with that but that's been i mean that's stuck out for me for sure like even last night like karis um like karis was was fouling uh, a decent amount which has been kind of a thing for him if he starts to get beat he tries to go for the steal a lot um, I, I don't know. That's, that's definitely stuck out for me though. Yeah. They rank pretty high and in, in the paint fouls, which is interesting because I forget, I think that was an NBA hoops. I'm forgetting what site measures that, but yeah, I mean, Sabonis has been in foul trouble in a couple games early in the season. Not so much lately. Miles was in foul trouble. I mean, Goga did come in the other night and had like, what was it against you? Oh, four, I think he had five four fouls, fouls in like, like four minutes. Of, yeah, 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 it was like record time. But it, it's just, it's interesting that it's worse than last year because if I wouldn't have, like, if you would have told me, here's what defensive schemes they're going to play, I probably would have assumed that they would have been more prone to fouls last year because of how aggressive they were being and how much was just getting funneled to the basket. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it feels like that's probably the more correctable one, but at the same time, like their free throw, like they, this hasn't been a team that's gotten to the to the free throw line much, if at all. Like that number is held stagnant. But I'm with you in the sense that um, the the lowest hanging fruit to to get to the line more often is is Karras and Sabonis. Like you said, like Sabonis's free throw attempt rate, he was number one on the team last year in free throws with over five per game, which sure isn't like a large number, but still he was the top free throw guy and now his free throw attempt rates as low as it was when he was a rookie in Oklahoma city. Meanwhile, his three point attempt rate is as high as when he was a rookie in Oklahoma city, like, well, not as high, but the highest since then I should say. So his free throw attempts are down. It feels like the pretty obvious move there. If you want to be able to get your team to the line more often to weather some of these issues is, is to use him, but also Karis um, once again, this is, this is the talking point with him pretty much, at both teams he's been at 
And I understand now that he's having the back issue. So maybe this isn't going to be correctable completely, but he's taking 37% of his shots in the non-restricted area again, and only 18% at the rim, which would be his lowest since his rookie year. So he's just not getting all the way to the basket. There's so many times where you watch him and he'll jump stop at that little like five to six foot range. And sometimes it feels like he has the ability to get the way to the rest of the way to the basket. And he doesn't. And like I said, maybe he doesn't want to fall and land on his back. I know that they talked about like wanting him to be able to fall less in other situations. So that might be a piece of it, but uh, he's averaging fewer free throws than he did when he came back for the Pacers last year. And it feels like if you're going to be able to, to get anything there, those are the two guys that are going to need to do it because They've been outscored other than last night to give them credit. They attempted more than, than, or they made more than New York even attempted. New York had 10 free throws for the entire game. The Pacers attempted 12, though I will say that was like the refs were really letting both teams play last night. That was a heavily physical game, I felt, Mm -hmm. and probably both teams could have got to the line more than they did. But they've only outscored, that's only the fourth time this year that they've outscored their opponent at the free throw line the whole year. And you know, they're not surprisingly, since they are a below 500 team, they're below 500 when they don't outscore their opponent. But it's like, you know, I don't think they can continue to be. And again, this doesn't completely apply because I think they only had 10 turnovers last night, but like they're 25th in turnover rate. They're 26th in free throw rate and 28th in opponent free throw attempt rate. Like, I don't think you can be all three of those things. Like one of those is going to have to change pretty dramatically because right now a lot of like what they're doing is dependent on what we said before. Like if they hadn't been as good on the offensive glass as they've been in some of these games, they probably go differently because like, luckily like three games that they won where they did get outscored at the free throw line, they shot 47% from three against San Antonio, 50% from three against the Sixers on Saturday and 40% from three against the, and the first game against the Knicks. So like, and against Utah, they just absolutely crushed the Jazz, who didn't seem very interested in doing the little things in that particular game on the offensive glass. So, like, fortunately in those games, they just shot the absolute heck out of the ball. Otherwise, like, you're putting yourselves at a pretty big disadvantage if you can't either stop turning the ball over so much or uh, correct one of the free throw things. Like, I think that that's definitely going to be something to continue to monitor, unfortunately, even though they didn't win the game last night. It looks like they did get a little bit better handle on that, but... Um, that was something that I prepared because people had asked about it and it's been something that's gone on since the beginning of the season. And some of that might just be too, like they, a lot of these games, they've only had one downhill option on the floor last night. They did have both Karis and Brogdon and uh, Brogdon Karis had seven free throw attempts to his credit. So even though he went five of 14 from the field, he did draw some contact. So hopefully that's something he can build on and continue to do to mitigate some of what his shooting struggles have been, because I don't know that I think on the whole that this team is going to be a great three point shooting team, particularly not on volume and they're not shooting a ton of them right now. But if you're not going to be like a great high volume three point shooting team with the way that you're playing, like I said, like one of those has to correct. Yeah, and just to expand on that too, um, shout out to Malcolm Brogdon though. Like he's been fantastic getting downhill. Like we we know that he's he's been one of the best drivers in the NBA for a while, um, but it really has held steady how well he's shooting at the rim. It still doesn't feel like it sometimes because like he'll miss like a, a quick bunny in transition like we saw yesterday, but 62% at the rim this year, which is the highest since he's been in Mil- since he left Milwaukee. 
Um, and he's also got a career high free throw rate. I think he's drawing five fouls a game right now. I mean, getting to the line five times a game right now, which has been huge, but like, I, I totally agree with you. Like I just, uh, you know, something worth mentioning like that, but that part has been nice to see. I'm interested to see if it holds up, um, you know, him hitting from three would be nice. It's been a little bit better lately. Still not great, but yeah. Um, I'm interested to see if the driving itself holds up because yeah, because I mean he started out his first season under Nate McMillan and he was like averaging a ton of drives. He started out that way last year too. Like that's kind of three years running, and then it's you know can he handle this degree of load with how his body tends to hand up? Yeah, because he also the has the season. highest usage rate of his career right now. Yeah, which is a lot, but which makes you wonder like over his overall load, but. If we have time for bonus content, do you have time for bonus bonus content? content. So we were asked, I believe by Jeff Hasser, one of our longtime listeners, um, what are your top five Pacer memes? Oh, Oh, that's a great question. Um, Since it seems like there's been an increase of those of late. There there have been. It's been a very meme-worthy season for a lot of reasons. well, I think for me, the top one has to be yours. I never use it because I, I don't like to bite people's bits, but like the sad Jeff Teague is is just elite. I don't really think you can beat that one. That's probably the best best Pacers meme that there is. Unfortunately, it's the best one that there is because it so often applies. Like I don't <laughs> yes. think other fan bases can fully understand the amount of like terrible things that the Pacers constantly have to overcome and fight through. Like it just, it, you can't quit sad Jeff Teague. Je- sad Jeff Teague has to quit you. And unfortunately he has not quit uh, the Pacers franchise yet. Like something, I mean, even like this, like finally Karis and Brogdon are back in the lineup. And now Chris Duarte is out with the shoulder injury, which I found like not to bring this back to not fun stuff. I found it interesting because you and I both talked about, I thought that he was really, working that shoulder out in the second half against Sacramento. And it looked like it was bothering him quite a bit on his shot. And mm-hmm. then throughout the road trip, I thought it was bothering him. And I saw that Rick Carlisle said that the first time he suffered that injury was against the Spurs. So clearly he's been uh, monitoring, or I guess handling some pain over the last few games. I and mean, that was one of the questions that people had asked a lot was what's going on with Chris Duarte. And I just kind of answered him on Twitter that I thought that he wasn't hundred percent, but mm-hmm. there, now we have answered the question or more so Rick Carlisle has answered the question, but yeah, sad Jeff Teague. I will never give him up until bad things stop happening to the team all the time. Um, I'm trying to think who else I would add. Um, one of my favorite ones, I can't remember what the play is after. I believe it was from the wizards game when they lost in the plane uh, there's a screenshot I use all the time where Domas just looks like he is in purgatory. Um, anytime like I get like ratioed on Twitter or anything bad happens, I tend to use that one because uh, it works well for me. I'll have to send it to you, but I, I do use it relatively often. That one's up there for me. Um, what else? Uh, I I also love using uh, – there's a gif of Roy Hibbert blocking a kid's shot. And I use that very, very often. Um, I think it's from a commercial or something that he did. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I love using that one. It's still disappointing to me that they don't have a gif of, of Roy blocking Carmelo in the 2013 playoffs, but they didn't ask me. Um, what other ones would you throw out there? 
Well, most recently, I've come to be fond of shocked Karis LeVert, <laughs> yes, or Home Alone Karis LeVert, I guess we should call it. He decided that he was going to do like the Home Alone face at the end of the Heat game when Chris Duarte missed the three, which I find completely spectacular. He, co- he completely looks like he was painted into the screen painting. It's I've already used that like three or four times, so that that's a fun one. Um, I still use both of Oladipo. Like, Oladipo was a very memeable guy he, he did very well um, me. i i i need the one where he's on the the ground in the hickory jersey and looking up like come on like that that applies in so many situations on twitter and then also the one i forget what was happening in the game but his eyes are like huge like he's completely shocked i use that a lot i think this more speaks to my personality than it really does anything else because like as you'll notice i'm using a lot where it's like I'm shocked or in a sad state of morose. Um, when, when I stop at posting sad Jeff Teague, it, it's either going to be that the Pacers have completely turned the health corner or that like, I just don't have the ability to feel anymore. <laughs> it's like sad Jeff Teague. He's there's still some feelings left there in him. Hey, um, some, some people are, are saying, you know, if Jeff came back, he probably would still think that he should get the most shots on the team, but um then yeah. I think that the last spot I would have to give this something that Lance did. Like there's the other day I was searching for something of him and it was whenever he fell and like acted like he had been hit in the chest and then two seconds later, like jumped up and ran away. <laughs> but there is a plethora of Lance gifs out there in, in the world. This way Wait, to- hold up. You just called a gif? Yes, it's a gif. It is a oh, gif with no. a G. Oh, Caitlin. Yes, that, that's what we're calling it. So, yes. I yeah, I mean, pick your favorite Lance one, and that probably applies. I mean, I think there's one where he's, like, skipping off, like he's about ready to go frolic through a meadow that's pretty hilarious. That that one doesn't necessarily always fit my personality or what's happening in Pacer games, but it's quite funny. So that would be my top five. I have I have two more I would throw out, uh, just as, as quick shots. Um, when I was still a fan – uh, I, I, I would routinely just get so angry that Ben Hansborough was on an NBA team. Um, like, I just will never get over the fact that Tyler Hansborough somehow had enough cachet to, to get his brother, who was not an NBA player. Um, like, I would argue the worst rotation player in the NBA during the 2012-13 season. Uh, so I always throw out that picture of something that, like, is clearly washed, occurs during a game, or, like, um just like something that doesn't make sense like you know like you like somebody's like throwing out like uh like two things that are really incomparable I'll throw out like the picture of of Tyler and Ben standing together um which is probably unkind but I don't really care um I was very angry as a fan at that time I was like why does Ben Hansborough exist um I'm sure he's a nice guy just not a great basketball player um the other one that I use all the time I mean the Thad Young meme will live in in my head rent free for forever that is like the greatest thing ever. Anytime that I ever mention anything, if I ever go on a podcast and talk Pacers, people will bring it up with me. Like, I think it just lives immortally. Um, the Thad Young meme. You've never seen it? No, I don't uh, even know what you're talking from about. From Fox Sports Indiana. They put up. A, oh, a, a, the yeah, gra- the, his stat yeah, graphic. Yes. Okay. So I use I, that as a, as a meme pretty regularly. I thought maybe but, we were hearkening back to when he smacked the ref on the butt when Jokic got ejected. <laughs> I that forgot that was quite that. funny. But uh, yes, so those would be those would be in my top five too. Okay, so then our other fun question, 
which I mean, clearly was being asked to you, not to me. Oh no. Um, what is the most refreshing outshine popsicle? <laughs> I still haven't had any yet. It's too cold for popsicles now. Mark, no, like it's never too cold. Like somebody told me that over the summer, whenever I was trying to make a decision between blueberry lemonade and a pumpkin cookie. And they're like, well, you probably need to go with the blueberry lemonade because cold drink season is going to be over soon. When is there like, there's a more, there's a limit on cold drink season. I think not. There's not a limit on popsicle season. Is it cold in your house? No. It, it is kind of cold in my house. Well, you can get up and me. have a popsicle. <laughs> yeah. um, the correct answer is always strawberry. Strawberry is always the most refreshing one. It fits pretty much any need or time. Um, lemon, very refreshing. I still think that raspberry is more of a dessert popsicle, quite frankly mango also very refreshing i like that one the lime is technically refreshing it's just a little bit intense it's probably <laughs> like you got to be in the right personality to to eat the lime one i'm still in search quite frankly of the grape and the peach i'm not huge on peach in general but i don't feel like i can fully answer this until i've located every variety of the popsicle but you really can't go wrong with strawberry to the listener who wants to know. That fits as a breakfast popsicle, a snack popsicle. Technically, it could probably be a dessert popsicle, but it's not as sweet as what the tangerine and the raspberry are. So you can't go wrong. Get yourself a box of the strawberry ones today. Also buy Mark a box and mail them to his house and force him to eat one so that the next time we do one of these podcasts, he will finally admit that they are elite popsicles. I'm watching too much basketball to to spend time going to the grocery store. Um, I think that's how it works. Uh, I do need to eat them. It's just it's it snowed here the other day. I don't. Ugh. I already like warm stuff. So like I'll drink warm coffee when it's ninety degrees out. I can't. I like I like iced coffee at times, but I'm just I'm I'm a warm person. I like having warmth. Um, so I don't know. I'll, I will get there. I've been saying this for a year and a half, but I will have an outshine popsicle in due time. Uh, it's a nice recurring bit that I've never had one. I think uh, it, it adds some spice. Is is there another good question that we have for us? No, that was the end of the fun ones. As, as sadly, I wish that there was time for more fun questions. I wish that we would have recorded this podcast after the Sixer game. <laughs> yeah, uh, it would be nice to be upbeat for once. Uh, but you know, we try. We try and be upbeat. I think we we bring we bring good energy. Uh, that's what that counts for something. Yeah, I mean, until we get to the fourth quarter. I feel like we're running out of a little bit of gas here. It's starting to be a little bit of 2 of 10 from 3. but I do think we put up more than 10 points. Uh, that 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 has to count, you know. Um, if anything, we ran stuff that made more sense, and there was a better process to it. So I feel good about it. Yeah, that's fair. Well, Caitlin, uh, this was a blast. I always enjoy talking. Uh, we had a great time on this pod. We will certainly be potting between now and the next time that we run uh, Ron, geez. And next time that we do two, two questions to, uh, to everyone listening, thank you for listening. Of course, go rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We really want to hear from you and get your feedback. Let us know what you think. Um, send us any questions for, for the next one. Uh, read us over any corners. Follow Caitlin over at C2 underscore Cooper on Twitter. Me at M Schindler NBA. And most importantly, just have a good rest of your day. And thank you for listening.